The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Deuteronomy. It's the opening 11 verses in the third chapter. I know that uh, for those of you who have a copy of the readings this morning, the label at the top reads 1 through 12. And it started off 1 through 12, and then um, I edited it down by a verse, and it fit on the page. And I didn't go back and change the numbering. So it's right in the bulletin. But if you've got sharp eyes, like some of you here, uh, you may have noticed the discrepancy in, in the numbering. So we'll stop at the 11th verse this morning, and I invite you to listen. For a word from the Lord as it is there written, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Here ends this reading from God's holy word. I'd invite the choir to come forward this time for this morning's anthem.
New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew in the 16th chapter. We continue from where we left off last week, beginning in verse 21 and continuing through verse 26. And again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord, for there it is written, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Well, last Sunday, some of you may remember, we considered the verses just prior to these that we heard just now. And they were a bit, shall we say, friendlier to Peter. You might recall, he then made his good confession when Jesus had asked his disciples the enduring question, Who do you say that I am? And that earned him a divine attaboy. And right on the heels of the praises that Jesus has lavished on him, and the reward that he has promised as a result, Peter reverts to being not just a dunce, but more than that, he emerges as a threat to Jesus. So much so, he's labeled an enemy's aid in the service of the devil himself. What happened? What suddenly changed here? Peter simply expresses a desire to look out for his master. The messianic open secret, the one that has been shared now with the disciples, resonates with them. They know who this Jesus is and what he is supposed to be about. And now Jesus is moving from the what to the so what of his identity? The Son of God has come for a very particular purpose. When the Hebrews were looking for a Messiah, mostly what they had in mind was that of a, a new King David. They, they thought back to the glory days of the kingdom of Israel and said, we need a leader like that, one who will lead us into the freedom of self-rule and self-determination, one who is going to set us free from our oppressors. And to do this, they would necessarily have to take up arms to overthrow and supplant the existing authorities. Peter knew this, and so he's protecting Jesus 
from threats that would prevent this scenario from being accomplished with Jesus at the helm. Now, clearly, what was going to be required was an armed campaign led by a great military genius. But the reality of the path that Jesus is on when he shares it with his disciples is met with resistance. The Hebrews had in mind a Jewish pattern, if you will, and Jesus is talking in terms of another, John the Baptist, one who talked critically of the current abuses in the power structure, but one who is ultimately led nowhere but to Herod's prisons and an untimely and brutal death like so many other prophets before him. The Hebrews liked people who weren't captured. So Jesus' plan doesn't sound like music to their ears, for it doesn't at all fit in with their triumphalist conquistador fantasies. And like the Israelites of the day, and like Peter, we too are often not really big fans of these plans of Jesus. No, no, forbid it, Lord, Peter says. You, your story, it cannot end this way. It can't end in defeat. By extension, of course, Peter is inferring that as Jesus goes, well, so goes Peter, right? And he's not ready yet to throw in the towel on this whole restoration of Israel thing. We don't want to see defeat either, Jesus. Right? Witness our popular movies. Right? The John Wayne films, the James Bond series, the Star Wars franchise, the Hunger Games trilogy, if you include Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2 in one film, as they should have been. Uh, these are just a few examples. My point is, we want our heroes to show strength and prove the maxim that might makes right as they fight with little brains and a lot of brawn to bloody, maim, kill, and vanquish their adversaries. But the way of Jesus, that is a different path altogether. It sounds like a surefire recipe for disaster, but it really should have come as no huge surprise to those who had paid any attention to the way that God had worked in the past to advance his agenda. The king of glory, the one of whom the psalmist refers to, this is a king unlike any other that has ever been or ever will be. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And this king of glory of whom the psalmist refers is a king who rules in ways unlike any other that has ever ruled, or any other that shall ever rule. As we are invited to consider again in this morning's reading from the Old Testament, how could a fugitive killer turn sheep herder with a fear of public speaking be the one who is going to convince the leader of one of the most powerful nations in the world to lay off most of his country's no-cost workforce so they could march off and set up their own state. All Moses wanted was to be left alone in anonymity in the wilderness. But the Lord provided in a miraculous way, and he was victorious. 
Consider Goliath, the champion of the Philistine army. How could a match for his phenomenal size and strength be found in all Israel? The Hebrews had no Andre the Giant anywhere in their ranks who could match the imposing stature of their foe. But the Lord provided in a miraculous way, and they were victorious. Consider the walled city of Jericho. It was the Fort Knox of its day, built to be impervious to threats, impenetrable to invaders. It must have been an imposing fortress. How could Joshua, the newly appointed leader of the Hebrews, prevail against a defensive fortification that was in the engineering wonder of the ancient world? The Israelites were a ragtag band of exiles and vagabonds with no military training or experience whatsoever, and they were still in shock after the death of Moses. But the Lord provided in a miraculous way, and they were victorious. Consider the army of the Midianites and the Amalekites and their allies encamped as they were in the valley by the hill of Morah. They were like locusts upon the land. How could Gideon, with a detachment that had been whittled down from 30,000 soldiers to just 300 men, possibly prevail against such a vastly superior force? But the Lord provided in a miraculous way, and they were victorious. Now I invite you to consider the church, alternatively referred to as the bride of Christ and the body of Christ, begun by a handful of unremarkable, even flawed country bumpkins, meeting in each other's houses as they sought to hide from powerful religious and political foes after the murder of their leader, how could they survive, much less thrive? And yet, this movement dedicated to the memory and teachings of their leader would go on to attract billions of converts. Their writings would be translated into so many languages that the book called the Bible would become the best-selling book in all of human history. But the Lord provided in a miraculous way. She is victorious. But the path to this victory comes at a cost. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, as the old saying goes. Only, in this case, it's more like everything ventured, everything gained. Because as Peter and his friends were only just beginning to realize, following Jesus is not a side hustle. It's a full-time, all-in vocation. And a very hard one at that. For as we talked about a bit last, we talk is cheap. Living out faith, that's costly. So much so that Jesus has a warning for those who would choose to become his followers. They're going to have to give up everything that they were about in their lives up to this point when they receive the new life that is in him, the Christ. When Jesus talks of, of picking up one's cross, much to Peter's dismay, he's literally speaking of death. Huh? For him, for Peter, for the disciples, 
for us. That's the place that Jesus was headed to. And and that's the place that his followers are going to have to go as well. But before the day they take their final breath, they will already have to die to self and to be born anew in and through Jesus. Now here's a hard bit of truth for you this morning. None of us is going to get out of this life alive. We don't like to think, much less talk about death, but it's coming. It's coming to us all sooner or later. So the question begs to be asked, what's worth dying for? What are you willing to dedicate your life to so that at the end of it, you can look back and feel as if it was all worth it? If it all meant something, Jesus offers an answer that is both comforting and disturbing at the same time. I will share the meaning of life with you freely if you will stop trying to create your own meaning long enough to accept it. Spoiler alert, though, it isn't going to look much like the way you imagine it's going to look. He's already hinted at this. When earlier in this gospel, the author recounts for us the issuance upon a mountaintop of a series of blessings to various groups of people in what has become called the Beatitudes. The recipients of these blessings are, again, not those who would be likely to be voted class president or most likely to succeed or most popular. They're not the sort of folks young people emulate in music videos. They're not the sort of people that are on the top of Forbes 100 list who now possess 30% or more of this nation's wealth. As Jesus asks his disciples, for what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return? For their life. That's the frustrating, even maddening thing sometimes about the kingdom of God. The heroes who are going to have a stake in it, well, they're not much heroes at all. You see, the kingdom already has a hero, and we ain't it. But it is on account of that unlikely hero that we have a seat at the table of heavenly banquet. We cannot force our way in with brawn. We cannot bribe our way in with riches. We cannot talk our way in with wit. We cannot sneak our way in with stealth. Instead, we are completely reliant on accepting the invitation that's been extended in and through Jesus. And that acceptance is open even to those of us who don't have all the other things the world likes to suggest that we need to have and to hone in order for us to measure up. The invitation has been made possible at the dear cost on the part of our Savior. So too, our acceptance of it comes at a dear cost to us, ourselves. The worth, then, of a Christian is not in self, but it comes 
from the worth of the only perfect one of God who gave himself to make us worthy. In order to be made worthy, all we have to do is jettison our own sense of self-worth. If we're not prepared to do so, then we are likely to hear Jesus speaking, Get thee behind me, Satan. For to defy the will of God is to be acquiescing to the will of the powers and principalities of another kingdom. That's the difficult lesson that Peter was having to learn as Jesus turned his face to Jerusalem and headed there to win the victory that looked, to most observers, like a classic and utter defeat. But because Jesus chose the will of the Father over the will of the self, the tomb was found empty, and we can hear the invitation to receive new life in and through the anti-hero who has overcome this world. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God.